You're listening to the podcast for Asbury United Methodist Church. Join us every Sunday at 9 a.m. for small groups, 10 a.m. for worship, or anytime at asburybosier.org. Well, will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I'm reminded that before you ever fried a fish, performed a miracle, walked on water, you were baptized. And God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God, remind us of your amazing grace. I imagine there are a few folks listening in this room and tuning in online that are coming into this space. and Maybe they feel like they don't deserve grace. Or maybe just maybe they don't want to give grace. Either way, Lord, meet us in this place. Make yourself known to us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. You are our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. And all God's people said, amen. Well, you got to know right now, I'm a little Methecostal. Pastor Matt might be a little Methe-Anglican, but I'm Methecostal, so you don't have to talk back to me. I just need you to know it's going to happen today. So good morning, Asbury. Oh, there you go. They're going to be perfect. (laughs) I was so delighted when Pastor Matt asked me to come and to preach here at Asbury. Um, I know that it's Advent, and not only does Matt not give up the pulpit very often, but especially not during Advent. So, Rach, don't you dare screw it up. Now, you need to know something about me. I absolutely love the relationships that I'm in. And I've grown really fondly of a covenant group that I meet with every other week, a a group of pastors that we get together for accountability and encouragement. And about a year ago in November, we started talking about this unlikely advent. I couldn't help but talk about what I was working on. And I started talking about all the people that are included in the nativity sets. Uh, You have your regular suspects, but, but no one really includes Uncle Zachariah and Aunt Elizabeth. And certainly no one's including a Herod in the mix. And that's when one of my pastor friends, Jen, she piped up and she said, you know, one year, Rachel, I had a little guy in my congregation give me a Herod figurine. And when I saw it, I thought it looked more like the Burger King than Herod. (laughs) But hey, little guy, you're asking the question that, that we're asking today. Why doesn't anyone include a Herod? I mean, let's get ourselves a Herod in our nativity set. But you and I realize there's a reason that Herod's not included. Nobody loves a villain. Say that with me. Nobody loves a villain. We got the likes of the Marvel Universe and DC Comics to thank for our indoctrination to all things villainous. Not to mention nearly every single princess movie that Disney produces. Now, I know it takes a solid antagonist to actually craft a great story, but... When we shade every character as good or bad, we rob this next generation of the nuances of the human condition. What do I mean? Well, let me say this. Nearly a year ago, well, it's been over a year ago, when I was traveling to the Holy Land with my mama, we found ourselves at Masada, Herod the Great's desert fortress. While we were there, our, our guide, Deeb, he, he said to us, you know, we're going to go to the top of that thing. Now, you got to know something about me. I'm competitive. Well, that's an understatement. I'm highly competitive. 
And so I wanted to make my way up the stairs to the top. Deeb looked at me and he said, Rachel, it's 100 degrees. We're not going to make that climb. And besides, you cannot make the climb and the viewing. You got to choose. And I said, okay, I want to see what's up there. And so as we rode the gondola to the top of Masada, I started to like get a little sick to my stomach. It got high, really high. And by the time we got to the top, I was like wanting to kiss the ground because it was that high. The view is absolutely spectacular. Now, there's something you need to know about the place. It's not exactly clear what happened there, but when you walk over that land, it's almost eerie. It's as if death had seeped into the ground. Violence sometimes makes a mark on a place. And so there we were at Masada, and we were walking around, and we suddenly got to the place where we were overlooking the entire landscape. It was the veranda of what would have been King Herod's palace. And as I was standing there, it was just absolutely majestic. Now, the view, I didn't get too close to the edge because, like, it was pretty nauseating. You know, like, you don't want to do that. You don't want to get too close. And so there I was, and it hit me. Looking over that entire landscape, kind of the swell of like the power and privilege. Like Herod the Great could have been standing in that exact spot. And I realized the seduction of power, just the, the pull of influence. I realized in that moment, there is a little Herod in me. And maybe just maybe, brothers and sisters, there's a little Herod in us all. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles and your Bible apps and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2. Now, here in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is always trying to make a point. When we read through Matthew, we recognize that Matthew is trying to take what's been said in the Old Testament and tie that to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so here's Matthew, he's talking about Jesus, and he places Jesus' birth in the long lineage of men and women who would have been A players in God's plan of salvation. Jesus is in the lineage of Father Abraham and Mother Sarah. He's a great teacher like Moses, but more than his family, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. So how does God decide, as the Gospel of John declares it, to become flesh and blood and move right into the neighborhood? Well, it's kind of counterintuitive. Jesus wasn't born in a palace like Herod the Great with the whole force of the Roman Empire. No, he didn't have that power and privilege. God came to us as a Jewish baby born into a family with limited resources, most likely surrounded by animals and for the mamas in the room with limited medical care. Can you imagine? Mother, uh, his mother and father, Mary and Joseph, they, they seem vulnerable. They're not exactly a power couple. And yet, the God of the universe teaches us that strength comes in a very different form. He gives power and privilege to those who lack it. A helpless baby wrapped in simple cloth is the opposite of the palace that I was standing on. Jesus represents a new definition of power and influence, and it's into this context that we encounter Matthew's story. Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. 
After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where's the one who's been born King of the Jews? We saw a star when it rose and came to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them, where's the Messiah to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. But you, you Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go to worship him. Herod the Great is disturbed. He is paranoid, and he's already starting to manipulate the situation. He perceived this so-called king of the Jews as a threat to his power, and it's no wonder. History tells us that Herod the Great lived this contentious life. From the beginning of his political career, he always had to fight for his power, always attempting to be who he was destined to be. From the beginning of his political career, he had to maintain his authority, first with the Judean territories and then with the likes of Rome. You may not realize it, but Herod the Great stood on trial on more than one occasion. And then his own mother-in-law, I won't say anything about that, his own mother-in-law tried to, tried to overthrow his position in Jerusalem. And so guess what he did? He had her executed. Along with nearly every single one of his family members, he had this beloved wife, Merame, and he killed all of her son, and then Merame as well. Just five days before this man died, he had his heir apparent, Antipater, executed. It was said of Herod the Great, better to be Herod's pig than his own son. He's cruel seemingly senseless in his violence. He lived by the myth of redemptive violence that he could fight his way to the top into being and doing what was right. The violence was the only true path of peace. There's a reason that when we read in the scripture that, that Herod and all of Jerusalem were disturbed because brothers and sisters, this isn't gonna turn out well. The people knew Herod. They knew his temper, they knew his disposition. According to Matthew, after King Herod learned that the Magi rejected his request, he, Herod, was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the same, with the time that he had learned from the Magi. And then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Brothers and sisters, did that really happen? Well, history is not quite clear. But it was in alignment with Herod's character. And again, Matthew is trying to make a point. The Herods of this world are in parallel with the Pharaohs of this world. Pharaoh, who in Exodus chapter 1 declared, Every Hebrew boy that is born to you must be thrown into the Nile, but let every girl live. Same story, different players, 
Same pattern, different centuries. Same power and privilege, different dynasties. Friends, nobody loves a villain. And yet, there on top of Masada, I realized there's a Herod within us all. Has anybody caught the new movie Spirited? It's a, it's a new take, like all three of us. Great. It's a new take on the classic uh, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. It's a little more modern, Matt, than The Redemption of Scrooge. I mean, he has a great book. Did you know your, your pastor was an author? I mean, he's just absolutely amazing. But let me just tell you a little bit about the story. The ghost of Christmas present, Will, uh, Will Ferrell's character, is out to redeem Clint, who's played by Ryan Reynolds. Now, the movie isn't exactly kid-friendly, and yet it's an honest, beautiful display of our human condition. Without spoiling the story for you, there's a moment where Clint decides that he's trying to uh, talk his, his little niece into actually d- digging up some dirt on a classmate. She's out to be president of the student council. And so he believes firmly in the mantra, win at all costs. And he says, you know what? I'm just going to get my people to do this work for me. Now think about this. He's going to get his people to dig up dirt on a middle school student. Just saying that out loud makes me feel a little icky on the inside. That is until I think about middle school. I don't know a single human being who loved middle school. When I think of a picture of hell, I think about middle school. It's just awful. Kids are just trying to figure out who they are. And in the process, they can be really cruel. I know sometimes I was. I had this little practice of giving my so-called friends these nicknames. Now, I would love to say that the nicknames were nice and thoughtful and encouraging and winsome. But they weren't. They were mean. Just plain mean. And there was a moment, there was this one girl in my seventh grade math class that I don't know what I, what I was even thinking, but I always had this nickname that I would give her, and then I'd make signs, and I'd put them on the back of her chair, and I even had a little jingle that I can remember to this day, and no, I'm not singing it, but I can still remember what I called her. And in the moment, I thought it was funny. I thought it was being hilarious. I thought that she enjoyed the attention, but she did not. I believe the lie that if I just bullied another human being, I would feel better about myself. But I didn't. Middle school is rough, y'all. So what do Herod and Clint and Pastor Rachel, and maybe even you two have in common? Well, maybe there have been moments. Middle school moments. Yesterday moments. Where we let the Herod within guide our decisions. And we tore down another human being in the process. Maybe it's that moment where you just laid into the gossip of the day. Maybe you decided that you were just had the upper hand in the conversation at work, and so you just made it happen. You just said what you were going to say. Maybe just maybe you posted that picture of a friend on Instagram that wasn't flattering. Perhaps you found yourself in a conversation, and you knew you shouldn't say it, but you just let it be said. Brothers and sisters, all of us, every single one of us, we have this thing in it within that we want to be right. We want to feel good. We want to win. And sometimes at all costs. The trouble is people, God created human beings, can become collateral damage 
in the process. We become the Herods to their hurts, the Pharaohs to their pain, the villains and their stories, and even in our own. Merry Christmas, y'all, right? <laughs> yeah. Now I look, I get it. Cancel culture sometimes tells us you're either good or bad, you're right or wrong, but, but we know human beings are so much more complicated than that. Can I get an amen? So much more. We all have a story. And when we look over our lives, we know the things that we've done. And sometimes with like one more nod to bad behavior, our entire story would change. And the story of the people around us. Our actions matter. Our words matter. They have the power to build up and the power to tear down. Proverbs 18, 21, the tongue has the power of life and death. And those who love it will eat of its fruit. What I'm saying is hurt people, hurt people. Turn to your neighbor and say, hurt people, hurt people. We do sometimes. When we hold on to our hurts and our wounds, they become our weapons of choice formed against the people we love. We speak pain into existence, pain that we don't always want to inflict. And ironically, these limitations we speak over others, we also speak them over ourselves. I call these words limitation prophecies. A lot of times we say to ourselves, I'm, I can't do that. I shouldn't do that. I'm not good enough to do that. And we play those tapes over and over and over again. And before we know it, with our own mindset, we have limited our future. Do you see how there's a Herod within a Herod in us all? Now, I imagine that Herod the Great wasn't always Herod the Great. Think about it. He was a child, an infant. And yet, there was all of these limitation prophecies spoken over him. He's born into a system where he believed that, you know what, if I'm going to make it to the top, i got to fight my way there, and I don't care who gets harmed in the process. He was primed to be Herod the Great terrorizer of people, a not-so-good person, a villain. Suddenly standing there at Masada, I begin to ask myself, why? Lord, why would you choose Herod to be part of this Advent story? And then it hit me. God became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood for even the Herods of the world. Now, friends, sometimes I don't want that to be true. I don't. I want to know where the boundaries are, but then I'm reminded of the scandalous love of God. In my own humanness, I like to know who's in and out, who the bad guys and gals are and who aren't. Like, I want to know where those boundaries are. There are certain people who get in and certain people don't. Come on, God, make it plain. But brothers and sisters, when we get there, that's pretty dangerous territory. Because I'm reminded that this nativity story, this Advent story, is a story of a God who includes seasoned men and women who fear they've been placed on a shelf. A magi who by birth are outside the circle of God's chosen people. An unwed teenage mother and a fearful, hesitant stepfather. And today, a villain. God, why would you include a villain in your plan to redeem and restore the whole of creation? But before we think we have this all figured out, Maybe we need to be reminded of the scandal anew. That God 
so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to what? Save the world through him. That word save, in Greek it's sozo. It's not just like save me from my sins, but it's actually this word that means to redeem and restore the entirety of the creation. It's holistic. God's kingdom is coming, and it's no longer Herod's Judea, Pharaoh's Egypt, or even Rome's empire. The kingdom is ruled by the scandal of God's love, a scandal that looks over the entire globe, seeing the Herod within, and inviting every single one of us into a new way to live, a new way to be human, a new way to see the world around us. When we experience the scandal of God's love, we are absolutely transformed. I've seen this transformation firsthand. Nearly a year ago, I found myself sitting at a table with Stan Stever and Chris Money and Juan Martinez of Kindway Prison Ministry. Kindway Ministry is a ministry that's designed to help people who've been incarcerated for a really long time get their lives back. You see, um, in this state, I did, did a little research. In this state, the recidivism rate is about 35%. That means 35% of people who get out of jail are going to go back and offend and then get, go back to jail. 35%. But Kindway, with their Embark program, their recidivism rate is less than 1.5%. 1.5%. This is an absolute miracle. And when I heard Stan's story, I couldn't help but share it. So last week, I sat down with Stan and asked him if he personally would share his story with you all. Let's watch. Well, hello, Stan Stever. I am so excited that you have joined me and these lovely folks here at Asbury United Methodist Church. And I just wanted you to share your story um, yourself. So tell us, Stan, why is it that you were in prison and what kept you there? So I grew up on a uh, in the sticks on the farm. Um, Hometown had about 900 people in it. It was just, it's a farm community and that's all it was. Um, my mom and dad became kind of workaholics. Mm. Uh, when I was seven or eight, my dad got rid of the farm. He was losing money, had to do something else. And that I lost my supervision. I lost my direction. I lost, uh, and I was home alone a lot. Yeah. Um, so I had no kind of mentoring, no direction in my life. And I'm watching TV, I'm hanging out with the wrong guys. Um, probably about uh, 12, I started dabbling in drugs, hmm. um, found some at my uncle's house. Um, 16, I, I was pulled over at three o'clock in the morning for doing 120 mile an hour down the road after I drank a fifth of black velvet, I uh, just, I was on a, I was on a, a, a path to die. Mm. And I, I really believe, man, I know God never, never causes ill, but I believe he knows what's going to happen. And, and, you know, Romans, it, it tells you that, you know, all, all things that happen, yeah is for the good. He's makes it for the good. And that's what he did in my life. So at the age of 17, I 
and I was carrying guns around. This is a farm community. This is a small farm town. Um, but I was bullied from the age of three up mm. from, from the, I'm sorry about that from the third grade up. So I hated school. I hated everything about school. I'd walk into school. I'd get sick walking. I'd physically get sick and vomit walking into school because of the anxiety I had because of the bullying that was going on. So it just kind of got worse. I got more violent. The anger and the rage started swelling up uh, about the age of 12. I hit a growth spurt. I was uh, six foot one, 280 pounds at 12. Wow. So I was a very big farm kid. Um, at the age of 17, everybody was scared of me in my presence, but would do all of the name calling and the bullying from a distance now. Mm. Um, and it all, it all came to a head one day. And, and that rage and that violence came out and I ended up taking a person's life mm. at the age of 17. I didn't really know what life was. I, I had very little life experience. Uh, so I went into prison at the age of 17. I got involved with gangs, uh, became one of the head leaders within the Aryan brotherhood. Mm. Uh, it's a notorious prison gang. Um, and was just living the prison life. Uh, man, God had different plans. He saved my life several times. And in, in, in 2009, uh, 2000, no, 1999, my mom came and visited me. Mm. I was in the whole solitary confinement. I came out to the visiting room in my belly chains and, and orange jumpsuit and looking a fool. But I mean, it was prison life. It's all you knew, right? That's all I knew. Uh, my mom looked at me and had a tear in her eye and, and she said, Stanley, when are you going to grow up? Mm. And I'm like, mom, I'm, I'm doing life in prison. I'm running one of the most notorious gangs. I'm making my own money. What, what more do you want? And she said, Stanley, you're doing the exact same thing you were doing when you were 13. Mm. You're rebelling against authority. You're fighting. You're violent. You're doing drugs. She said, what's different? And I kind of got mad and, and decided to leave the visit. I went back to my cell. My cell in solitary confinement was eight foot by 10 foot uh, with a, a bed, a, ba a toilet. And that was it. Um, I'm pacing back and forth. So, you know, you don't get to pace very far. And in my mind, I'm like, what's different? What's different? What's different? And, and the only thing, Pastor Rachel, that I came up with, um, the only difference was I was in prison. Hmm. And it really, I think God used her. I know God used her to take that first scale off my heart because it made me start looking at myself. And I feel like that's when God intervened and, and he put me into a program called Kairos. Uh, actually, the warden of the prison, uh, I was her thorn in her side. <laughs> um, she... Uh, she put me in Kairos. I went through Kairos Sunday at uh, two ten in the afternoon on Halloween of 1999. I accepted Jesus Christ into my life. I heard a forgiveness story of uh, uh, an officer that his dad was an officer and was killed on the side of the road and how he forgave him. And I, I never knew about this forgiveness. Hmm. And once God grabbed a hold of me, it was like I had a, a brand new heart. 
Pastor Rachel. And, and, and with a heart transplant, you have new responsibilities. And he, he baptized my leadership skills from the dark and just mm. kind of brought them into the light. I was able to uh, start mentoring. I, you know, I went from trying to do harm and looking at people as property to uh, understanding what life was really about. Uh, the funny thing is, man, God's got a sense of humor. He's awesome. <laughs> he's, uh, man, if anybody ever says he doesn't, uh, they better not look at my life. Um, so my best friend became Lee Tolbert. Lee Tolbert was, uh, he was an African-American out of the inner city of Toledo. He was the youngest of eight. I was the youngest of eight. He was incarcerated at 17. I was incarcerated at 17. I mean, just so many similarities. And we were working on the back dock and he saw me with my shirt off and my shorts on. And he saw the tattoos, the swastikas and the lightning bolts and all the racial stuff that was on me. But he would see me praying with guys. Yeah. He would see me circle up. He would, he would see guys come to me for counsel. And he wanted more. And uh, he ended up going through Kairos, ending up giving his life to Christ. Uh, we, we, we were inseparable. In 2015, um, he was given a diagnosis of a fourth stage prostate cancer. They had misdiagnosed him four times over a year's period. And, and it was just it was metastasized by this time. And the state's medical, it's not real good. Yeah. So I became his care person. I, I, I told him that if he didn't have to go to the hospital, I wouldn't make him go to the hospital. I would do everything in my yeah. strength. Um, it became pretty bad. He, um, he had to start wearing diapers. And, and I remember one time we went down to the infirmary to get a pack of diapers and he was carrying them down the hallway. And, and one of the young gang bangers, not really knowing the situation was like, ah, that old MF he's got diapers. And man, mm -hmm. Lee was younger than me. He was like four years younger than me. Mm -hmm. And all the pride went out of him and he was humiliated and, I told him he'd never have to do that again. I carried him from then on. I, I never, I tried to look out and see everything that was going on. Um, I get up every morning at five o'clock and I would start, I'd get a bucket of soapy, soapy, warm water and some rags. And I would, I would stand him up and I would take his diaper off and I'd clean him up. And, and just this one day was really sick. And I, I finally got him up and 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 I'm, I'm cleaning him up. And Pastor Rachel, I hear him. I hear him start laughing. And I'm like, Lee, this is not a laughing matter. No, it's I'm not funny. He's he's standing up. So you kind of know in area where I'm at. And, and he just laughs. And I'm like, Lee, what's so funny? He said, if your Aryan brothers could see you now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and it really put things into perspective because I had stopped seeing him as a black guy a long time ago. Yeah. And God just gave us that time. That day was the last day I would see him. But my wife, me and my wife adopted him uh, for his 40th birthday. We brought his whole nine member family up 
to the visiting room, rented a bus, went and got him. Um, we adopted him. My wife got on his visiting list. And when he went to the hospital, before he went, he, he just, he said, Stan, promise me, I don't want to die alone. Yeah. I don't want to die alone. Yeah. And I told my wife that, and we promised him. And when he went to the hospital, he would, uh, she would go visit him. She would take him stuff and, and just spend time with him. So he wasn't alone. I ended up getting a parole um, and ended up dying 30 days before he was released. Uh, but Lee, Lee, Lee would spread the gospel wherever he was. It didn't matter. Yeah. He was a Paul singing in the sanctuary, singing in the, in, 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 in the hole. Um, and then in, in 2020, my mom passes away uh, in February in uh, July, I would go to the parole board. The parole board would recognize her dying and, and say that they regretted that I wasn't able to be there for her. And I, um, I got a parole that day after 34 years of incarceration. And I couldn't believe it. Um, I, I'm working my, my dream job now. And Ray, Pastor Rachel, just a little bit of a little bit of obedience, a little bit of just saying yes to him has yeah. created so many avenues for me. Tell the folks what your job is now. Like, what do you do? So I work for a nonprofit called Kindway. Um, we're a, a nonprofit reentry program. We help men and women yeah. transition out of uh, incarceration. Uh, we work with them for about a year inside. So right now I'm actually going inside a prison right now, working with 15 men uh, at Madison Correctional Institution. I get to uh, director of community outreach. I get to work with great churches like New Albany. I just, it, it's an amazing thing how God has just opened so many doors up through all of this. Your story, Stan, is absolutely amazing. And, uh, you know, I am just so grateful that not only are you sharing your story with Asbury, uh, but your short story because of an unlikely advent is being shared with thousands upon thousands of people. Because I think as followers of Jesus, we need to know that God's scandalous love is real, but it actually transforms people's lives. And your life is a beautiful example of that, Stan. So thank you, thank you, thank yeah. you for sharing Amen. your story with me and with all of these fine folk. Amen. It's an honor. It's been an honor. There was a time in Stan's life when he let the Herod within win. And then he encountered the scandalous love of God. And it changed everything. So how about you? What's your unlikely story? Friends, I wonder, as followers of Jesus, do we actually believe in a God of grace? Do, believe, do we believe in that grace? Because I believe if we did, it would change us. It would change the way we love. It would change who we love. And it may even change the way we love ourselves. Friends, 
our God can redeem the villain within. Let's pray.